This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The province is giving drivers a couple of pre-election breaks. Yesterday, the Premier announced the end of license renewal fees, including a refund for the last two years. That's 240 bucks in cash if you live in southern Ontario. They're also eliminating tolls on highways 412 and 418. It'll cost 1.1 million billion, excuse me, that's 1.1 billion. And as you heard in Jeremy's news, Queen's Park says it'll happen without any service cutbacks. Well, yesterday I heard from a number of listeners who think that money could be spent on better things. What do you think? The numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And what about the implications for enforcement of both tickets and insurance? I'm joined by Councillor Brad Bradford, Ward 19, Beaches East York, and a member of the Board of the Toronto Parking Authority, along with Frank Clayton, a senior research fellow at the Centre for Urban Research and Land Development, and Elliot Silverstein, Director of Government Relations for CAA Insurance. Hey, guys, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Libby. Thank you. Uh, Let us begin with Brad. Uh, Are you worried that this move is going to hit the city uh, in the pocketbook? Well, obviously, we have lots of budget challenges at the City of Toronto. That's not new news. And we're working very closely with our partners at the province and the federal government uh, to help take care of some of those costs borne for the pandemic response. But, you know, fundamentally, when it when it comes to issues that the city would be concerned with as it relates to the, the removal of the stickers, uh, you know, we just need to make sure that we have the, the leverage and the tools at our disposal to, to carry out parking enforcement from our bylaw officers and also with Toronto Police. I've had an opportunity to connect with both of them. Uh, and, and from my understanding is most of the enforcement, uh, fines bylaw stuff is actually driven through the plate, not the sticker. So as long as we build a program that accounts for, for our ability to recoup those fines, uh, when they are outstanding, uh, it shouldn't be a huge issue on the city's end from an enforcement well, perspective. Well, I can remember a few times when I went to get my sticker and uh, there was a parking ticket I didn't pay. And it was expensive, but it was like, uh, no ticky, no ticky, no ticky, no that, sticky. Right. And that's always been one of the tools that we've had at our disposal. Uh, from my understanding and, and reading of the release, uh, that would now be driven through the uh, plate renewal process. And so we would still have the ability to collect those outstanding fines. Uh, you know, it's one less tool at our disposal, but I think it's a bigger fundamental question about, you know, were stickers the uh, the right tool for, for doing these things anyways. And uh, we'll have to figure that out, but I'm confident that these things can be addressed from the, the parking bylaw enforcement perspective. Brad, I'm oh, sorry, Elliot, uh, what about insurance? Uh, Again, you know, when you went, when you go to get your sticker, you have to show your current insurance. Otherwise, you only have to show it if the police stop you for some reason. And and a lot of that is going to remain the same. It's, uh, again, motorists are still going to be required to renew their their plates at different times. What we're seeing the change in is that the fee is not going to be collected and the sticker is not going to be issued. But you're still going to have to provide those pieces of evidence every year or two years. So there there still will be the mechanics in there to... to, uh, to make sure that people are valid. So I think, you know, really this is a change that's been, that's been talked about over time. But, you know, as long as the, the process continues, that you still need to make sure that you're renewing on time and that uh, even without a fee, you don't just simply get to get your plate and drive away and never have to renew it again. Um, you know, again, th- there will be some checks and balances in there. Frank Clayton, does it make sense to do this? Uh, we've seen with a lot of things a uh, uh, move uh, to 
user fees for all kinds of things. If you play, if you pay for your sticker, it's drivers, people who don't drive, don't pay. Uh, what do you think about this move? I, I think it's a crazy move. Uh, we the tax. Sorry, uh, we lost you there for a sec. Can you repeat that, please? Oh, sorry. I think it's crazy. Uh, we, we have a tax that everybody's gotten used to. It produces over a billion dollars of revenue each year. The province has financial difficulties, and it's, it can't possibly uh, not reduce uh, expenditures at some point in time because they have to pay, you know, they, they're going to have a billion dollars a year less money to, 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 to spend. And so they're going to borrow, but ultimately they have to repay the money. So it's, 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 uh, I, I just don't understand it. It's not something people have been clamoring for. Uh- what about the removal of those tolls on highways 412 and 418? Well, that makes more sense because uh, uh, there is no that those two hi- highways link uh, 407 and 401, and they're the only two linkages across the whole uh, Greater Toronto area, the Greater Golden Horseshoe. Which, um, there is a, uh, a, 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 a toll on, on those roads. Every place else, you can go between the 407 or 401 without any toll, like Huey, you know, the, like, for example, uh, Don Valley, 400, uh, 401, uh, or sorry, 400, 404, all those roads, 427. You can come down to, um, uh, 410. You, you can come down without any, t- uh, so it was really an inequitable to hit Durham regions. <laughs> with a, this extra toll and nobody else. Uh, Brad Bradford, I mean, one of the things that we often hear about certain kinds of city policy, whether it comes to bike lanes or whatever, is there's a war on the car. I mean, it looks to me that these measures taken together is the provincial government or the the progressive conservatives saying, we love the car. We were in favor of drivers as opposed to the war on the car. What do you, what do you think of that? Well, I try and, as you know, m- move away from that, uh, <laughs> that discussion of war on the car versus war on the bike, all of that sort of stuff. But you're right. That sentiment certainly uh, has, has been a talking point for a number of years. And this government has brought a number of things to the table here that uh, certainly are uh, advancing and, and making it easier to uh, to drive cars. They're proposing building new highways. They're removing tolls. They're removing uh, the, the license plate uh, sticker here. Uh, so definitely, I think you could say it's a pro-car agenda. Um, but I think that they're also trying to position this in the context of affordability. And certainly when I'm talking to folks at the door, when I'm reading my emails, when I'm having phone calls, affordability is top of mind for all Torontonians uh, and I think people across the province of Ontario. So this is a small thing that will help in a small way. But I think at the end of the day, you know, it's about investing in transit so that you don't need to have a second vehicle. You know, I don't have a a car myself, but my wife does. So we're a one car household. So we need to invest in transit so that, you know, you don't necessarily need to have a second vehicle. We need to build more housing in, in our cities so that people have closer proximity to where they're living and they're working. Those are the big ticket affordability items. And again, having 120 bucks back in your pocketbook. Uh, you know, people are going to appreciate that. I think people will like that. But it's really a, a conversation writ large about affordability. And uh, does this move the dial in a big enough way that uh, at the end of the day, people are going to see their lives getting more affordable? That's what that's what this question is all about. Well, back to the issue of transit. So the city of Toronto is in trouble monetarily because of lower transit revenue because of the pandemic. So does doing something like this sort of set back the issue or the agenda of getting people back on public transit? Well, it's interesting. I mean, for for folks who are listening right now and probably trying to drive through the streets of Toronto, I think that's enough of an incentive uh, to want to take transit. Uh, There's lots of congestion. It can be challenging to drive around the city in, in rush hour. But, you know, as Frank was pointing out, it's it's $1.1 billion that is no longer on the table in terms of revenue. You know, I see it from another perspective, though, uh, when you're cutting revenue, but not removing the fundamentals of a program, uh, government is still going to need to deliver that program. So so there's less resources to do it. I would suggest that they're going to need to find ways to be more efficient. And per- perhaps if it's on the broader tax base, 
there's actually more of an incentive for government to find efficiencies there, uh, of course, without cutting the services. That's always the trick. But, you know, I think we've also seen, to this government's credit, you know, that they are making historic investments in transit as well, particularly in the GTHA, uh, matched by the feds and the municipalities. So, you know, I think they're, they're focused on getting people moving. But for me, it is about affordability writ large, and it's a much bigger conversation about investment in housing, investment in transit. Those are the things that are hitting our pocketbooks in a big way. 120 bucks back each year on a sticker. That's a, that's a nice to have. Uh, but those bigger issues are, are still remaining. Elliot Silverstein, one of the things that I've read is that there will be more of an investment in license plate readers in the technology that will allow enforcement of these things. Do you have confidence that that's going to happen quickly enough or efficiently enough to pick up the slack? Yesterday, and the press. Sorry, I missed. I I don't know what kind of a line you're on, Elliot, but yeah, we missed the first part of your. When when they when they announced the, uh, the the press release yesterday, they actually mentioned they were putting an investment into the uh, automatic readers for police, and I think it's going to be important because, um, again, you know, uh, the plates are where a lot of the information lies, and I think it's going to be a requirement to you know for government and police to work together on this because it is um, a, a shift right now that they're going to be refunding. Uh, the, the fees, but it's important for all consumers to make sure that that is compliant. And then police now will have that ability with the new readers to be able to assess if there's any issues. So, you know, it is going to be a bit of a work in progress, but I, th- I think, again, at the same time, nothing has changed in terms of the process and the responsibility of drivers to make sure that they are up to date and having their, their, their license uh, and their vehicle plates up to date. So, um, you know, again, police will hopefully have this, this, these materials roll out in, in the coming months. Um, and be able to use this more broadly so that uh, they can assess uh, if there are any issues on the road. In in the coming months, so that's slated to happen soon. Well, yeah, again, they, they, they announced yesterday they were putting a further investment into the automatic readers for uh, for police. So, so uh, you know, one would assume that as they as they begin to phase out the, um, uh, the the license plate stickers, they will begin to you know again if they haven't already uh, begun to invest in in the police uh, technology, so they have that av- available in more vehicles and more police vehicles to assess that on the roads. Frank Clayton, does this type of a move set back? A commitment to public transit? Does it just encourage more driving on the roads? Uh, no, I don't think it has that effect. Uh, one has to remember that even uh, Metrolinx, uh, even by the year 2041, uh, estimates or forecasts that 75% of all trips at rush hour in the, in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area will be by car, which is the same as it is now. So we need transit to to, uh, to accommodate population growth and so on, but we're growing so rapidly in the greater Toronto area that we're going to have all kinds of car car usage yet. So it's, it's, we have to have a balance between the two, and I don't think this is enough to change that balance. Okay. Um, we have to see if it actually works out in practice. Sometimes, you know, there's an announcement, we're fixing this, we're doing it, and then uh, there are problems putting technology in place and all of that. People, I'd like to hear from you. What do you think? Is this a good move? Is it going to make you vote for the PCs? 416-360-0740, toll-free one 866 740-4740. Let's go to Natalie in Mississauga. Hi, Natalie. Oh, hi, Libby. How goes? Fine. You're in the car, it sounds like. Oh, uh, yeah. Great. Listen, I just have a question. I don't know if anyone's addressed it yet, but I paid for two years for my sticker. Yeah, you're going to get it back. It's going to be refunded. Yeah. Do they just do that automatically? Do you know? Uh, there, there, if I, I believe it was confusing when the premier announced it, that if you, uh, have the same address that's on file with your license, then you'll get it automatically. But if there's any kind of change in address, you have to go to the website and change your address. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. Let's have a great day. You too. Let's go to, bye-bye, let's go to Kate in Toronto. Hi, Kate. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. This 
refunding the money doesn't make sense to me if they're going to do away with the price of the stickers and the stickers themselves. Why not just say everybody who has plates as of, say, 2023, you don't pay? Uh, you don't pay. And my other question is, if we're losing $1.1 billion with this paying for stickers, how are they paying for this uh, plate reading technology? Because technology, as you know, if you own any uh, devices, they're not cheap. So is it going to end up by costing us like $2.2 billion? Uh, well, I would imagine, and perhaps one of our guests can weigh in here, that they were going to be changing the technology anyway, uh, but it comes out of another bucket. <clears throat> uh, you know, we have huge deficits. Is anybody going to notice another billion here or another billion there? But other people have pointed out maybe there's better things to spend the money on. Maybe we should give nurses a raise. Short $1.1 billion. You'll see the cutbacks in all sorts of programs, mostly social and health services. It always is. Okay, well, we wait and see. They made a promise. You're going to have 240 bucks in your jeans, and then we wait and see if there's anything that's going to be taken away because of that. As someone who doesn't drive, but my taxes pay for the highways and the roads, I'm not going to get anything out of that. So that 240 is not going to buy a vote for me for the BC party. Okay. Thanks, I, Libby. Bye. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Uh, that's right. This is for drivers. Paul in Picton. Hello, Paul. Hi, Libby. I love your show, by the Thank way. Thank you. Um, I, I just have an idea that maybe just take it away from the seniors and leave it on normal cars. Uh, what do you mean? Don't seniors have normal cars? No, I mean, just take the sticker away from the seniors so they don't have to pay, so they have a few extra dollars in their pocket. Well, you know what? They have already made their decision based on, I would guess, a lot of very political considerations. Yeah, so sure. I know people are weighing in with other ideas. Uh, this ship has sailed. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you know, he's going to get the money from somewhere else from us. <laughs> well, yeah, th uh, that is always the way. Thanks for your call, Paul. Yeah. Thanks, Libby. It's interesting, Libby, because, you know, this is this is part of an election platform and all of the parties, uh, as they have been already, and they will continue to roll out election policy platforms as we head towards June. And and the big bet here is that, uh, you know, folks are not going to just see this as an election plank, but they're going to see it as a way to save the money. Uh, but as we're hearing from the callers here, you know, it, it, it really depends on who you ask and different parties will have different sort of policies that resonate with different voters. Um, but at the end of the day, everyone's going to have the opportunity to decide on, on which policies and which programs resonate with them. They'll go to the ballot box and, and they'll cast their vote. Well, ac uh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, I wonder what kind of longer term ramifications there are. I'm pretty relieved that uh, certainly Elliot on the insurance front does not think that this will lead to less enforcement or more people trying to drive without insurance. That's a problem. Uh, uh, but we have to see. Uh, as I said, I think that probably the automation was underway. Frank, do you know about that? Uh, no, I don't know about it, but I suspect it was. Uh, so I don't think that's a, that's a big issue. I think the big issue is uh, what's where where are they getting the, the billion dollars from? <laughs> and the only place they're going to get it from, given given it's an election year, is borrowing again. And uh, so that that's another billion dollars a year added to our debt every year. To that uh, has to be paid back at some point. So <laughs> someday the day at some point the day of reckoning will come, but not for for uh, most of us in the next few years. Well, exactly. And the projected deficits, which result from the pandemic, are huge. And that's what I'm wondering. Is anybody going to even notice another billion dollars? But again, you uh, know. It's a, you know, it's a billion to billion, but it, it just add, it just adds to it because uh, somehow we got to, uh, you know, the province can't create money like uh, the federal government can. Uh, it, it has to be paid back or get money from the federal government to, uh, to cover their deficit which in turn, the federal government has huge, huge, fantastic deficits. Okay, uh, let's go to Bridget in Toronto. Hi, Bridget. 
Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Um, this is a little bit uh, off topic of the parking uh, or the stickers, but I do wonder about the toll. I, know, I My understanding is that one of the um, the highways is owned by uh, a foreign country, um, and I'm wondering if we are going to get rid of the toll. Well, are we paying them? No, no, no. This is these are two two highways. They're regional highways. Four twelve, four eighteen, and the four oh seven is now owned by Canadian Pension Fund. Okay, and they did not meet their obligations, and the province could go after them for a billion dollars because right. they didn't meet their obligations to the province. But the province is not doing that, and a lot of people are. Wondering why. Frank Clayton, do you have a theory on that? Uh, I don't have a great theory, but I think they, they, there was a, a, a clause in the, uh, the agreement that allowed the, the, uh, the owners to, uh, to, uh, to get, uh, get out of that because of the pandemic. Uh, the question of whether the pandemic was uh, sufficient uh, you know, justification, but I think there's a clause in the agreement that uh, the lawyers will debate about both sides if, it's, if they try to go after it. Well, yeah, the, I don't think, it doesn't look like they're trying to go after it. No, they're not. Even though uh, that would be, uh, that's pretty neat accounting. If they got a billion dollars from 407, that would pay for the license sticker removal. <laughs> uh, for one year. Yeah. Let's go to Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. This is um, a typical conservative strategy. Uh, reduce revenue, and down the line, we'll then hear that we can't afford certain programs and services. We'll see them cut, and it will open the door to further privatization, and I'm particularly worried about health care in that regard. That's my comment. Okay, thank you for that, Dennis. Jim in Tilsonburg. Hi, Jim. Are you there, Jim in Tilsonburg? Mm, something is happening weird with... Jim, last chance. Oh, no, wait. Jim in Tilsonburg, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, go ahead. You're yes, on the I'm air. I'm wondering how the province of Quebec can get by without, one, without a front license plate. They only need one license plate. And they do not have a sticker. How much money could our government uh, recoup if it stopped putting a license plate on the front of all cars? Well, uh, wouldn't it be uh, difficult uh, in certain situations to read the license plate if it was only on the back? Well, the province of Quebec doesn't have that problem. And and, uh, neither do a lot of other states and other provinces. Hmm. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, there are no license plates on the fronts of cars in Quebec. A lot of states don't have them. And speaking to the border guards, they claim that they don't need them either because they can see our license plate on their cameras. Uh, Okay, Elliot Silverstein, do you have a comment on that? Well, we've seen over the years that there's been talk about the license plates and where they should go with that. And, And there is a safety factor in terms of having a front and a back. And, you know, while some states, some provinces do have just one. Um, there really hasn't been any uh, initiative in Ontario to move away from that. I think as well at the same time, uh, you know, again, we want to make sure that people have the valid plates and that they want to have the plates in good working order. We've had other issues with plates where they've been peeling and so forth, um, and, and, the, and the physical condition of it has been a challenge. And I think that's more of a pressing issue than, than the discussion about should we be removing one from the front because um, there are safety values to having a front and a back for law enforcement. Okay, I'm going to try to get to uh, a couple of calls before we have to wrap this segment up. Barry in Orangeville. Hi, Barry. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? Fine, thanks. Please go ahead. Um, I'd just like to make a point that not everyone lives in urban areas that has access to public transit. And because of all of the financial burdens from the pandemic, I mean, I think it's an olive branch being handed out to people saying, we're going to, as a government, we're going to give you a little assistance to help reduce the increased expenses. You know, it's not a matter about people that have cars, just want cars to travel around and do nothing. People that live 
in rural areas need a car. It's a basic... Uh, and, and depending on where you live in a city, public transit might not work for you either. Good point, exactly. Barry. Thank That's you true. for that. Let's go to Al in Brantford. Hi, Al. Hi there. He he stole part of my uh, saying here because we've had another 20,000 homes out here in Brantford and Paris area that in turn 90%, I would say 75 minimum or more, have to drive back to the city or the area around there, Brantford or, pardon me, Brampton or Mississauga or Hamilton. But be, aside from that, it's only recent years that the that the gas tax and the and the and the license plate fees weren't targeted to the building and maintenance of the highways in Ontario. It was Bob Ray that took that out and put it into the general pot or general coffers, whatever they call it. Okay. Do you remember? Uh, vaguely, uh, but you know what? I've got to wrap up this segment. So, Al, thanks for your call. Um, let's go around the table. 20 seconds to each of our panelists, starting with Frank Clayton. Okay. Well, I guess the government's done, done the, uh, uh, the tax, uh, taking the fee off the, the license plate. So, uh, we can't do much about it. <laughs> okay. Elliot Silverstein. The really important thing for, for drivers to remember is that with the removal of the, the cost and the sticker, it does not take away the, the, uh, the responsibility for them to make sure that their license and their, their plates are up to date and make sure that they have it in place at all times. Brad Bradford, last word to you. Well, it's clearly a, uh, you know, it's a pitch towards folks who are driving cars. It's an option to make life a little bit more affordable. But I think at the end of the day, Ontario has big, big challenges when it comes to affordability uh, that far exceed the $120 license plate sticker. So we will see in June how people feel about it. Stay tuned to the other parties, see what they're bringing forward. Uh, but we will all have an opportunity to decide if this is the way we want to go forward. Okay. Thank you so much, Brad Bradford, Elliot Silverstein, and Frank Clayton, appreciate your time. Thanks, Lady. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a break. And speaking of affordability, um, are your guilty pleasures going to remain affordable? And I'm talking about chips and Fritos and all of that kind of stuff. There's a kind of a big dust up between the 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 maker of those brands, which is PepsiCo, not the little guy, and Loblaw, the largest grocer in the country, and uh, Frito-Lay not shipping to Loblaw because they want a price hike and the grocer doesn't want to give it. So we'll get the scoop on that when we come back. And uh, feel free to call and tell us what you like to snack on. 416-360-0740, toll-free one 866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's a food fight between two giant companies. And if your guilty pleasure involves Lay's or Fritos or Cheetos or Doritos, or Sun Chips, and I'm holding them up for the camera. I found a whole box of these uh, there for some TV shows that we are going to be shooting down the hall. I feel like I've uh, come upon very rare items. Uh, but otherwise, you may find a, have a hard time finding them if you shop at a store owned by Loblaw companies, PepsiCo, which owns these brands, has stopped shipping to Loblaw because of a price dispute. They want the grocers to raise prices. Loblaw disagrees. And this comes in the context of really high food inflation, more than 5%, about 5.5%, and supply chain issues. And not to mention that Loblaw has many private label brands that it would love to sell us instead. And there could be further ripple effects, pardon the pun, if the standoff continues, it could hit potato producers, among others. Now, for more details on why the chips are down, let's go to Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director, Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Hi, Sylvain. Good afternoon. So, uh, PepsiCo wants a price hike. And Loblaw, which has the final say in its stores, said no. Why would they say no? <laughs> well, 
so when you when you sell products to uh, a grocer like Loblaws, you have to agree on two prices: wholesale prices and suggested retail prices. Uh, my my guess is that Loblaws said no to one or the other or both. Uh, so I don't know exactly what went on there, but uh, Loblaws did not want um, to uh, honor uh, conditions that uh, that PepsiCo was asking Loblaws to uh, to to follow. And Loblaws is arguing that increases that are being asked by PepsiCo are unreasonable. Uh, they're on record in saying so, and. You have to appreciate where they're coming from. They actually, Loblaw actually manufactures chips for themselves too to support uh, both the President's Choice and No Name brands. So they kind of have a sense of how much it costs to produce chips generally. And I think that's what impacted uh, the argument that Loblaw gave to, to Pepsi. And Pepsi basically decided to stop selling. Well, it's interesting because the Retail Council chimed in and said, uh, I don't know what kind of an increase they were asking for and said, you know, that, that Loblaw or whatever the case is, uh, is, is trying to prevent brands from using the situation as an excuse to, to raise prices uh, in, a, in a way that's uh, not warranted. Yeah, so, um, I mean, it begs the question, so if Loblaw, so uh, the Retail Council of Canada represents all grocers, so if Loblaw uh, decides to, uh, quote-unquote, protect the citizen, protect the consumer from inflation, why aren't other grocers doing the same thing? So it's, this is more about style than anything else. I wouldn't put all grocers in the same boat. I can tell you right now, some grocers are actually getting along with vendors. And at the end of the day, as consumers, you want the supply chain to get along because if you have feuds like this, uh, and feuds will eventually kill businesses up the food chain. When you kill businesses up the food chain, as a consumer, you end up with fewer choices. And with fewer choices, you will see prices rise even more uh, over the long term. So over the short term, yes, perhaps Loblaw wants to protect consumers from inflation, but I'm not sure if consumers will win over the long term. Okay, and it's it's unclear if that is actually what they want to do or whether perhaps they want to give more shelf space or they. I'm sure they make more money on their own brands or perhaps on other brands which are not owned by such big and powerful people and, and have to toe the line, certainly on the wholesale price that you were talking about. Make, make no mistake, Loblaws is not losing here. Don't, 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 don't lose sleep at night because, uh, because of Loblaw. Loblaw will just replace uh, Frito-Lay uh, products with their own uh, products. Uh, so I don't think that Loblaw will be impacted by that. I think PepsiCo is just doing it because it's just they would compromise uh, the brand equity of of many of the brands they have. Because the last thing you want to see are say Ruffles sold at say a dollar and twenty five cents at Loblaws, while the same bag of chips is sold at two dollars and fifty at Sobeys. That's the last thing you want. So that's why market discipline is gold for a company like PepsiCo. And if it's likely to compromise that, it will eventually walk away. And that's what it did. In the past, what's new here is that in the past, you saw processors blink first. So PepsiCo would go ahead, accept Loblaw's condition, and they would negotiate, renegotiate terms with Sobe's, Metro, Costco, and Walmart. That's not what they did this time. They basically walked away from the biggest account instead. Uh, I'm interested. I, I did not check the price of these brands. So are they uh, the middle of the pack compared to, I mean, uh, I like potato chips. I usually buy those kind of kettle potato chips. They're a little more artisanal, I would guess. So are, are, is, are these products, are they the middle of the price range or uh, the bottom or the top? Well, I mean, I'm I'm not a I'm not a chips consumer myself, <laughs> but these these 
these products uh, go on promotion. That they are promoted quite a bit, uh, and it's it's not necessarily coincident that this uh, sort of boycott happens the week after the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is a big deal for a company like PepsiCo, uh, and and I think the timing was actually appropriate for them too, uh, not to lose too too many sales. And they're going ahead with a clear message to Canadians and to Ottawa, because really what's at stake here is a code of practice. So the industry can have an arbitrator to look into these matters instead of seeing these feuds going out of hand, which is exactly what's going on right now. Hmm. What about knock-on effects? I've heard that this could ultimately affect potato producers because they use some Canadian potatoes. Are you aware of that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, PepsiCo operates, I believe, nine plants across the country, and uh, all these plants are using Canadian-grown, Canadian-produced commodities, including potatoes. So obviously, uh, potato farmers are, are, are very concerned. And uh, But if, if, if this rift doesn't last all that long, I don't think they'll be impacted. But I can tell you right now, other sections of the grocery store could be impacted by a stop sale. And I'm thinking of dairy, for example. Can you imagine a stop selling dairy? Like if a company would stop selling, say, cheese or yogurt, uh, almost immediately you would see in Ontario and across the country milk being dumped all over the place because you just can't store milk for that long. So this is this is symptomatic to a much larger issue than just chips and, and multinationals because a lot of family-owned companies uh, are are looking at this, hoping that uh, this 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 feud will get settled. I was going to ask about dairy because there were just some pretty big hike, uh, price hikes in dairy uh, yes, from absolutely from supply and chain management. Absolutely, you're just you're raising this point uh, appropriately because that. So the 8.4%, a lot of consumers panic because, oh, my God, this is going to cost way more for all of us. But what about processors? And what about this relationship between processors and distributors? Uh, there's a lot of tension right now in dairy uh, up the food chain. And so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how things unfold. We've also, uh, before we wrap things up, seen yet another survey that a lot of people now say they are having trouble feeding their families, 43%. They're making changes in what they buy. They're looking for cheaper food. Is this a temporary thing? Uh, I, I I don't think so. This is going to last a while. I mean, uh, the supply chain is, is, uh, is, is a mess right now. And uh, but but it's slowly getting better, but it's going to take a while, and so uh, so we need to be uh, a little patient here. And uh, and frankly, uh, for people uh, with less means, you just have to be careful. Do your homework. Uh, make sure you know exactly how much you uh, you should be paying for items on your grocery list. Look at flyers. Use coupons. Uh, use uh, food rescuing apps like Food Hero, Flash Food. I mean, those are the things that you need to do right now, more so than ever. Okay. Sylvain Charlebois, thank you very much for that. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, uh, a very serious incident, an anti-Semitic incident at a middle middle school is the second one there involving Hitler salutes. Uh, this has happened at other schools. We will talk about that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. For the second time this month, a Toronto middle school is investigating an anti-Semitic incident in which students performed the Nazi salute in front of classmates. It occurred at Valley Park Middle School in the Thorncliffe Park area. A French teacher who is the child of Holocaust survivors had just left her classroom, and when she returned, this is a quote, several students surrounded her and gave her the Heil Hitler salute. And this comes on the heels of another similar instance at Charles H. 
best middle middle school earlier this month in which students also apparently performed the Nazi salute. And in a statement last night, the Toronto District School Board Director of Education, Colleen Russell Rollins, issued an apology to the teacher and said the board is striving to attack incidents of hate through learning. Is that enough? Numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's go to Michael Levitt, President and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies. Hi, Michael. Good afternoon, Libby. Thank you for having me on. Well, Michael, you have said that anti-Semitism is a systemic problem in the Toronto District School Board. Why do you say that? I think the record speaks for itself, and we are seeing uh, incidents on a weekly basis, multiple incidents happening, uh, ranging from uh, graffiti, some really hateful graffiti, including swastikas and another language targeting Jews, uh, to, again, these incidents that you referenced in your uh, in your introduction of actual uh, teachers or uh, students being met by uh, being met with uh, salutes and other language, including you know this teacher, this uh, this child of Holocaust survivors facing the Nazi salute and also a, a chant of "Hail Hitler" in the classroom. Uh, we're saying that this has been happening now for months and months and months. There's a pattern to it that happens across the school board. It's time to move from a reactionary approach of going in and kind of patching these situations when they emerge. And we need to do something um, more comprehensive to make sure it's ignorance behind these acts. It's ignorance, um, you know, with every one of a lack of understanding of these symbols, of their impact, of, of what they mean in this situation, that the impact they've had on this teacher we need to be doing a better job reaching those students and not just in the aftermath of an incident. Okay, well, here's my question. Sure. You just said it's ignorance. This morning I heard the mayor saying uh, it's ignorance. They don't know. They don't, they don't know how bad this stuff is. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe they do know. Uh, we know that there's an increase in anti-Semitism all over the world now. I mean... Why is there an assumption that this is just out of ignorance? These these children don't know. Maybe they do know. Maybe they got it at home. So we're we're seeing, as you mentioned, um, a rise in anti-Semitism. We just have to look at the situation in Toronto uh, uh, last year, uh, where Jews were the most targeted victims of hate crime, uh, accounting, according to the Toronto Police Service, for about 34% of total incidents. So we know this is on the rise. In terms of where students are, again, picking up these, uh, the, the language, the symbols, uh, the, you know, where they're being exposed to it, we don't know. We can't say that definitive. We certainly know that social media platforms are a major, major source of memes and disinformation and Holocaust distortion and hatreds towards Jews and hatreds to, hatred towards everybody else as well. We know that's the reality in a lot of the places uh, that these students are going. We also know that gaming platforms, because we know that a lot of them are online gaming, and those particular areas, those many of those sites, are also used by people with very nefarious agendas to be able to reach kids at a young age. But we don't have to look much further than our, uh, than our regular, than our, you know, our media sources to see in recent weeks discussions of swastikas or yellow stars appearing in the context of uh, anti-vax rallies. Uh, we've seen the yellow star and uh, invocation of Anne Frank to be used by people uh, pushing back against vaccine mandates. And of right, course, the, the with, trivialization. The trivialization, uh, the distortion of those symbols, which again weakens um, the, the, their uh, understanding in terms of the horrific period um, that, that, they're, you know, that they're reflecting. That's why we come back to this issue of education. 
But, you know, we, we talk about this was a grade eight class. We've seen this playing out in elementary schools as well. We've seen uh, incidents uh, of vandalism and other things uh, at, uh, being present with even younger students. So we must do what we can to bring not just Holocaust education, because certainly we've got a wonderful um, community, a still a strong and vibrant community, even in their 80s and 90s. Uh, at Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center alone, we have nine or ten Holocaust survivors that are on sort of a regular rotation doing multiple sessions daily in schools across the country. So we know that that's a resource that's there. But I think we have to be having a bigger discussion on the nature of anti-Semitism. Yes, the historical anti-Semitism, but also what does it look like today? What is the Jewish community in Canada, in North America, globally, what are we facing? And I think those are important discussions that we are starting to turn our attention to in terms of providing, uh, especially for teachers, training programs and resources on understanding anti-Semitism kind of then and now. And it's something that we're working closely with um, the, uh, the Provincial Ministry of Education, which just provided funding to ourselves and to the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, to CJA, to be creating, in our case, it's a bilingual anti-Semitism classroom toolkit that will be a multimedia resource for parents and students, you said it, are they getting it at home? At home, it, would it be ignorance or would it be hate? We well, don't know the answer. Well, what that, we do know is we need to tackle it. W- that was my next question. Yeah. So uh, we don't know much about what's the consequence of this. The school board has said there will be consequences. But uh, is anyone, I mean, are they going to find out where the sources, I mean, it's one thing to punish them, to say uh, you're suspended or uh, you have to write uh, uh, I hate Hitler a hundred times on the board, whatever it is. But it's another to investigate and find out where this came from, because otherwise, how are you going to know if it was online or if, in fact, they got it at home? So we heard loud and clear, both from the principal uh, and I must say that the teacher involved who I, I was in touch with um, over the weekend and, and as recently as yesterday, you can only imagine, Libby, how shaken, shaken she has been by this incident and the number of feelings it's brought up for her um, from her past and, you know, how she's processing this. It's, it's been traumatic is not too strong a word, but she's been um, she's felt supported by the principal at the school. Um, who had dealt with an earlier incident a couple of weeks ago, and I, I think it's been widely reported. There's a, 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 an education program, a Holocaust education program, um, that's taking place, uh, I think, next week in the school. Obviously, this is just creating an even more emergent situation. We heard Sherry Schwartz-Malt from the, uh, uh, from the TDSB standing out in front of the school yesterday talking about uh, how TDSB is going to put their full attention moving forward and they're they're understanding they need to bring in community partners, um, uh, organizations like ours and many of the other organizations in the Jewish community that are dealing and tackling on the front lines the issue of anti-Semitism. I think on the issue of the investigation and the consequences, we understand that these are students, we understand that these are teens, and we've heard that the board and the school are going to be doing that investigation, uh, and they're going to be handling the consequences. I think, again, on the confidentiality side of this, we've, we've, we've got to make clear that this is a serious situation, and that's something I think that everybody has been saying, but also leave it to the school and the board in this particular case to, to deal with the students and the families, um, as they have in the situation most recently uh, at Charles H. Best, uh, where there was another similar situation. And again, um, we were told that, that consequence had, had been given. Um, but we, we need to stop seeing these incidents. The fact that we're in 2022 having this conversation, Libby, is absolutely abhorrent. It's abhorrent that a teacher is met by these symbols and this language of hate. Let's face it, some of the most hateful language when it comes to not just the experience for Jews, but the millions of others that were also victims of the Nazi regime. It's just absolutely shocking that we still have to be having 
this conversation in Toronto, in Ontario, in Canada um, today. Well, the other part of it, I mean, it, it was even more than kids getting up in class and doing this. They surrounded her. I mean, that uh, to me, I mean, that is extremely menacing, if not assault. Uh, again, I, I think that um, the, the situation in the classroom um, for this teacher was incredibly um, disturbing and uh, is something that she's going to be processing. But I, we certainly, at Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center, we've been supporting her and we'll be continuing. We, you know, we've we've been in touch directly uh, with the uh, with the director of TDSB um, and with other senior officials to say we heard the call yesterday. We heard the call yesterday um, for Jewish organizations to uh, you know to be involved and be part of the solution. That's exactly what we're going to do. And and our work every day is five, six, seven presentations across the country, um, you know, bringing survivors' voices into classrooms, into other places, and and, uh, whatever resources we can bring to bear to address this um, systemic, and I used the word before, this systemic issue that is repeating um, multiple times per week. And by the way, we know it's not just Toronto. We know that this approach is something that Ontario-wide, and that's why we're working closely with the, uh, with the Ministry of Education to see these things addressed in curriculum and to make sure that in this particular context, the tools are being provided and we want to be part of that solution. Okay, I'm looking to see if I have Stan and Brantford. Uh, can you make your comment in 20 seconds? <laughs> I was just trying to make. I, I I think one of the biggest things that we have to deal with is, like he said, in education. What bothers me is the farther you get away from something in history, the less you're accepting of what the reality is. And if you're going to have programs in school, they have to be compulsory. And I would say they should show like the Smithsonian programs, on the atrocities that were committed. I mean, the students here don't realize how people were executed or gassed or hung or beaten. They hear that. I think there's so much documentation of this. That should be part of education because you do want to shock them a bit. Okay, Stan, (laughs) that was, uh, we get the drift, thanks. Okay, uh, Michael Levitt, last 20 seconds to you. Well, you know, I, I think Stan makes a very good point about, uh, you know, history. The further away we get, the uh, the lesser the impact. And that job falls on us, all of us, to be educating our students. And not just the history. Jews are facing anti-Semitism in society today. And the, the students need to understand, as do the teachers, need to understand what that looks like, what that sounds like, because we must ensure that our next generation, that our students are upstanders and not bystanders when they see hate against anyone uh, rearing its ugly head in their communities. Okay, so Michael. got to be a priority. Michael Levitt uh, from the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center. Thanks so much for being with us. And that's Thank all you. the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.